This morning, I'm speaking, just finishing our series um, from Mark, um, although I'm not looking at Mark this morning, but we are looking at the resurrection of Christ. And you know, just, just this clip here, this is the Spartan army, and this is a group of 300 warriors, and they choose to pitch themselves on a very small opening road, and um, they choose to have the battle of their lives in this specific spot. 300 men there to fight thousands. And they have chosen with such precision that the battle would be fought at this specific point in the road. And you know, they knew that their futures depended on this battle. Their families, their loved ones were at stake. And they fought with ferocity and skill as they wrestled this huge Persian army. And I think for us as Christians, there are still many battles that are being fought. If we look at our past, even our present and our future, there are battles that are being fought. There are doctrinal, scriptural battles that are still being fought around the world today. And there are those battles in doctrine which actually don't seem to matter much, actually, when we look at interpretation and we look at what they mean. It doesn't actually matter whether or not we believe it or we don't, or this happened or didn't happen. Was it literal? Was it not literal? There are doctrines that we believe strongly in as churches, uh, as different movements of churches, where we're going to fight for on our views, and we believe and we're going to hold to those doctrines, but actually... Other churches, other Christians would have different views. And we see that as being okay. And there's room for that. And then I want to suggest there are doctrines that are totally... There are doctrines to die for. Parts of scripture that we know that if they're changed at all, they totally and catastrophically undermine the entirety of Christendom if they're not true. And the death and the resurrection of Christ is one of those to die for doctrines, okay, that we hold on to. I know Lee Strobel, some of you will know this guy. He's written a book called The Case for Christ, and this is a really small um, little pamphlet on some of the details on the answers for The Case for Christ. He was a, an atheist journalist uh, in America whose wife was a Christian, and he was so fed up with his wife's faith that he decided he was going to, and he was an investigative, investigative journalist, he decided he was going to disprove his wife's faith because he was so fed up of how it was impacting their lives. And he actually believed that she was pretty stupid to believe in such a fairy tale, the Christian faith. And he decided, you know what, I'm going to disprove the biggest faith on the planet. So he goes into work and there's a colleague in there who is a Christian. And so he asks his colleague, look, I just can't, I can't get my head around my wife's faith here. I think this is really easy to disprove. What should I go for? How do I disprove to my wife that this faith is just nonsense? And this colleague suggested that to prove, totally disprove this faith, the resurrection of Christ was the place to go to. He says, look, if he didn't rise 
from the dead, then there is no victory. There's no Messiah in that case. There's no power in the whole of Christendom. And so Lee Strobel sets out on this journey to disprove. If he can just disprove the resurrection of Christ, it all tumbles. It all falls apart. And I wanted to look at a letter that we've already looked at, actually, as a church a little while back. I want to look at 1 Corinthians 15, which is, some of you will have looked at this in your groups recently. I think Barry sent notes on that. Um, but this is a passage that the Apostle Paul looks at as he is arguing for the case for resurrection to the early church there in Corinth. And I think, I think Paul wants Christians to not focus all their attention on just the death of Jesus and the fact that he died for them. But actually, there's this recognition that it's at the resurrection of Christ that we get to stand to fight. It's at the resurrection of Christ that, do you know what, we live or die. It's at the resurrection of Christ where we can stand and have total and utter confidence of the life that we have now and the life that we have in eternity. It's at the resurrection of Christ where we get to stand united as one church and declare, not as Gerald Butler says there, remember this day, men, it will be yours for all time. But something like, remember this day, people, church, because it's changed your life forever. I want to suggest, we've, we've been going through Mark's Gospel. If we'd have stopped Mark's Gospel at chapter 15, Christianity would be a total tragedy. It certainly would not be a gospel of good news. Because you see, we're left with the most depressing scenario imaginable. Injustice has been done. A murderer has been released. The innocent has been killed. We have black skies, remember. Terrible pain. Crying women. And a huge stone in front of the hero's tomb at 6pm on Friday evening. And if we stop at the cross, there's absolutely nothing to celebrate, folks. There's nothing to put our hope in. There's nothing to follow. I want to suggest the resurrection should shock us, people. It should cause us to question. As we look at the Gospels, and we look at the disciples' reaction, even as the women who were the first to see him ran back to say, he's risen! Jesus' own disciples did not believe them. And even as he appeared in front of some of them, they could not believe what they saw with their eyes. Paul, in this letter, wants the Corinthian church to be firstly totally confident of the ground that they stand on. Of where they pitch themselves when it comes to the battle. The battle that has been fought and won. And so we want to look at just a few things from 1 Corinthians 15. So if you've got your, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to start there. And he starts by looking at some of the facts around the resurrection of Christ. Okay? So he says, for what I have received, I passed on to you as of first importance, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Do you know, Paul is aware here in the church, and this isn't long after Jesus' resurrection, but he's aware there's confusion, there's false teaching going on, on the resurrection. And do you know the idea of somebody being raised from the dead after being crucified isn't just a difficult concept for us to get our heads around, for the world to understand. It was in this culture. Because the Jewish nation, they actually believed in resurrection, but they believed this was something that was going to happen at the end of time when all would be resurrected. And so this idea that someone is being resurrected from the dead was hugely difficult to comprehend. But Paul starts by looking at the historical facts. And I think there are three really important facts that, from this passage, we can hold on to. That actually, I think, all historians agree with. I'm not just talking about those who have a faith in Jesus. I think all historians, when they look at the facts, can agree with these. So... He says that after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. I want to say Paul's letter here was written at most 22 years after the death of Jesus. That's what history tells us. And Paul is naming literally hundreds of people who were witnesses to the risen Jesus. This was over 500 people who had witnessed Jesus after he was resurrected. And actually, at this point here, the big thing is, they were still alive. Most of them, some had died. But most of these 500 witnesses, eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ, were still alive at this point, as Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. And for them... In their time here, there there couldn't have been any question. Over 500 eyewitnesses who have seen Jesus after after the cross. And this is actually one of the reasons Christianity grew with such ferocity. Because there were so many eyewitnesses who were living so differently because of what they'd seen, what they'd experienced. And so Paul reminds them, firstly, one of the key things to to look at when we're looking at the resurrection, the facts is we have over 500 eyewitnesses who at that time were still alive. There was no question for the Corinthian church. They could go and speak to people. They could go and ask them, what encounter did you have? Secondly, I think all historians are going to agree on this fact that the tomb was most definitely empty. Why? Why do we know that the tomb was empty? Well, it's very simple that If Jesus' body had been in the tomb, then historians are convinced that the Jews or the Romans, if it had still been there, they would have produced it as soon as these first Christians started claiming that Jesus is alive. He's alive, he's risen. Hold on, guys. 
They would go into the tomb, they'd wheel out this body. Look, he's dead. We've got the body, come and have a look. Do you remember, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a, he'd been seen as a massive threat to the Jews and a total political threat to the Romans. And they had conspired to kill him. And the whole point there was for them to snuff out Jesus and this embryonic movement of Christianity that had occurred. The last thing they wanted was Jesus' disciples persuading people he'd risen from the dead. If they'd had the body, as I said, they would have come out and said, look, here he is. Christianity, had the body been in the tomb, should not exist. It shouldn't even have got off the ground. The so-called resurrection appearances should have been instantly disproved by both the Romans and the Jews. But neither the Jews nor the Romans ever did produce the body of Jesus. And that's simply because historians would agree this tomb was definitely empty. Third thing, the third fact that we can be assured of is actually the conversion of the guy who's writing this letter. Here we have the Apostle Paul, Paul of Tarsus. And he was an anti-Christian persecutor. He was going around killing Christians because he saw it as such a threat to the Jewish faith. And we know that he was so opposed. We have it in historical sources. And he says, his testimony is that he was personally converted as he saw Jesus. He had an encounter with the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road. And actually this encounter that he had with Jesus transformed his life so immensely. We have six ancient sources that historians go to. Obviously we've got Luke who's writing Acts. We have Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Tertullian, Dionysus and Oregon who all confirm that this newly converted Paul was willing to suffer continuously and even die for his belief that he had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. And to see someone who is transformed so dramatically suggests an encounter and a testimony that we can't ignore. That just really backs up what hundreds have already witnessed to. That this Jesus is risen. Now, Lee Strobel, he was this investigative journalist, as I said, and he comes to the same conclusion based on all the facts that he can find that Jesus truly must have risen from the dead. And, you know, just as Paul wanted to bring real confidence to the church in Corinth as we look at the case of the resurrection, this is firm ground, folks. I think sometimes... We believe it's intellectual suicide to believe in such things. And actually, that's not the case at all. This is not intellectual suicide. Actually, when you look at all the evidence, it's almost intellectual suicide to believe anything other than Jesus Christ must have risen from the dead. Uh, I want to read one quote by an ex-Muslim, a former Muslim, who was investigating the claims uh, and he's written a book called No God But One, Allah or Jesus. 
uh, and he's called Nabil Qureshi. And he says, after studying the historical origins of the Christian faith, I came to these conclusions. That Jesus died on the cross is as certain as anything historical can be. That he rose from the dead is by far the best explanation of the events surrounding his death. And that Jesus' claim to be God is the best explanation for the immediate Christian proclamation of Jesus' deity. Putting it all together, Jesus claimed to be God, and he proved it by rising from the dead. The case for Christianity is powerful. Despite my ardent desire to believe in Islam, I had to admit that history was in favour of Christian claims. And even more reluctantly, that it challenged Islamic teachings. As we look at the resurrection, it's so important, church, that we understand, actually, there are a huge amount of facts that back up the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there is this sense, actually, it still comes down to faith. But when we look at the facts that face us, even just historically, we can be very confident of the resurrection of Christ. Paul moves on in this letter to start looking actually at the essentialness of the resurrection. Okay, And he goes on to look at the fact that actually life is pointless. The Christian life is totally pointless if Jesus was not resurrected from the dead. He says this, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we're then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who also, who have fallen asleep in Christ, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Do you know, Paul goes through some arguments here, trying to look at the essentialness of the, of the resurrection of Christ. And he starts really with... Uh, this sort of circular argument. Um, actually, to some degree, he's not trying to persuade them here about Christ's resurrections. That's not actually what the, Christian, the, the Corinthians' argument is. I think, actually, having all these witnesses around them who witnessed the risen Jesus, more their doctrinal challenge was actually about what happens to us. And so they were arguing that we are not resurrected. Okay, And they were arguing about our resurrection bodies. They thought, essentially, no, when you die, you go into the ground and you rot. And Paul's argument essentially says this. It says, look, if, you're not res- if, if we're not resurrected, then that means Christ did not. It's a circular argument. He would say the other way around, Christ's resurrection automatically means we will be resurrected. Now, last week we were sitting down playing games as a family with another family around the table. And suddenly we all saw this flash of lightning. And we all know what happens then, don't we? Because anywhere between two and seven seconds later, what happens after lightning strikes? Thunder comes. It follows. And his argument is essentially saying, if you don't believe in thunder, then you can't believe in lightning. 
One inevitably comes from the other. Lightning always produces thunder. Always. So if you don't believe in our resurrection, the thunder, then you can't believe in lightning, Jesus' resurrection. That's his argument to them about resurrection bodies. And he's saying, come on, folks. We know Jesus was resurrected. So therefore, it's inevitable. It will happen. We will be raised from the dead. We will have resurrection bodies. So essentially, in this life, we're living between the flash of lightning and the clap of thunder. That's where we are, folks. And so when we're counting, you know, there you are counting going, how far away is that storm? One, two, three. And I don't know, is it kilometers or miles, however far it is? Actually, instead of counting one, two, three, we're counting 2019, 2020, 2021. When's it happening? Verse 14 says, if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Paul doesn't mess around here at all with this understanding, this doctrine of the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, then our faith is useless, so is our preaching. It's all a massive mistake. I wonder, as a simple question here, if you died and you found out that God wasn't true, okay? Would you have been glad to have lived the life that you've lived as a Christian anyway? Have you thought that one through? Do you know, I think Paul, Paul's answer to this would be no. I would not have been glad to have lived the life that I've lived. If Christ wasn't resurrected... Essentially, our lives have been an absolute waste of time or total in in vain. And I think when it comes to this doctrine, some of us have a slight misunderstanding on this one. Because I think we go, well, do you know what? There's some good things and we can, if that that doesn't happen. And we we sometimes try to look at doctrine and go, well, if this didn't happen, it's it's actually okay. Um, And I've still got a relationship with Jesus. I want to suggest... When we're looking at the resurrection, Phil, if you want to jump on the keyboard and play us a little tune. I think some of us, we think it's a little bit like this. We're playing away on the keys, playing a nice song, but then we say, do you know what? Okay, that bit of doctrine there, we can just take that out and take that out and it's still okay. So we'll take out middle C and F sharp from this. Can you play it? Still sounds great, Phil, that's just not fair. And I think, you know, you should still get the gist of that song. But actually, when it comes to the doctrine of the resurrection, this isn't about taking away a few notes. The resurrection of Christ is the power chords that we have. So Phil can play as much as he wants on there, and there's nothing. It's dead. It's a total waste of time. Thanks, Phil. There's nothing left when you take away the power chords. And the resurrection is not one of those doctrines that we can look at and say, well, if this didn't happen, you know, it's still kind of okay. There is absolutely nothing left if we take away the resurrection of Christ. 
If Christ wasn't resurrected, then actually, Paul says, we are to be the most pitied people around. We've been deceived. And we've been deceiving others and living a lie. And you know, the cost of following and living for him is immense. For people around the world, it means they have gone through great hardships, persecution, death. They've been martyred for their faith. Millions, billions have given up their time and their money and their honour to live out what they have believed is the truth. The resurrection is the power cords. You take it away and there's nothing left. Verse 20 says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's just affirming that to the Corinthian church. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Do you know, Paul wants to reaffirm, using two analogies here, the certainty that we can have because Christ has been raised from death to life. We too have this utter certainty. And he uses two analogies to explain it. And the first one, we actually as a culture are going to struggle to understand really what he's talking about. He's talking about the first fruits, okay? And actually, these are cultures of agriculture, you know. These are farming cultures. And what would happen when you get the first fruits, these are the first crops. And actually, there'd be festivals that would go on. The first fruits festival to celebrate that actually there's food. To celebrate that actually we're going to live through this year. Because we can't see some of this stuff under the ground, but we can see the first fruits. So therefore we know that we're going to eat, that we're going to be able to feed our families for the rest of the year. And there's this rejoicing. And so Paul uses this analogy for them. It's difficult for us because Brexit happens. Is there going to be any food in the supermarkets? Yes. Yes, there's going to be some food in the supermarkets. Maybe not as much choice. But we all know there's going to be food in the supermarkets. So trying to get our heads around this first fruits analogy is really quite difficult. But for them and their culture, this was their life. This was their livelihood. This was them feeding their families. There was no social security. So if the, if the harvest didn't happen, if it was destroyed, man, they didn't know if they were going to make it through. So there's a sense of them understanding there's life. Again, the thunder and lightning analogy helps us in this one. Because it's not questioning, will it come? It's when will it come? Okay. And then secondly, he uses this phrase for, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now, some of us understand this, but actually, just to try and help you to understand this analogy, uh, there's one guy who explained this really well. He says, essentially, imagine right here, right now, I have a heart attack up front. And there I am. I die. Within a couple of minutes, what you will find is all parts of my body are going wrong. 
Within 24 hours, rigor mortis is setting in. And my body's getting very stiff. And actually, even my toes are experiencing the consequences of death of the heart. And you can imagine the toe actually speaking up and going, hold on a second, I want to put in here, why have I died? It wasn't me who had a heart attack or a toe attack, it was the heart. This is just simply not fair. Why am I being punished for something that happened to the heart? And you know, we turn around and we say, do you know what? The reality is, Toe, you're not on your own. You're part of an organic whole. And the organic whole has died. And you've died in him. So when we talk about us being in Adam and having died, for as in Adam all die, this is the analogy of the toe and the heart. (coughs) But then because we have some fantastic doctors in the church, we might have Ben and Phoebe running up with the paddles, you know, those shock paddles, don't know what they're called, defibrillators, yes. Getting the shock up there, bang! And suddenly I come back to life and my heart starts beating again. And within minutes you see parts of the body starting to come back to life. And suddenly the toe's up and it's doing a jig. Maybe. And the toe turns around again and says, but it's not fair. Why have I come back to life when you didn't touch me? You shocked the heart. You didn't shock the toe. And this is the reality, folks. This is the gospel of Christ. So in Christ, all will be made alive. We've been made a new creation. And we will be resurrected. Not because of anything that we have done but very simply because of who we are in. Paul ends this letter. Actually, he goes on to talk about what resurrected bodies look like, which I'm not going to go into. But he ends this letter with this sentence. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. You know your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Do you know, I have to be honest, there are times in my life when faith feels very costly. The giving of time, of money, of energy that we give to the body of Christ as we serve him. There are times, honestly, in life where I want to stop. And I want to settle for easy and comfort. It would be far easier. I'd settle for that life without some of the pain, without some of the difficulty that comes as we serve others. There are times actually when living out our faith feels quite isolating. You know, some of our friends, I know, uh, parents in the school grounds... They live out their lives with very different values and desires. And it can be isolating. But I want to suggest that the resurrection of Christ changes our perspective and purpose in life forever. We live with that utter certainty that Christ is victorious. 
we live with the certainty of not just where are we going in the future or eternal hope, but actually that God wants to use us to bring resurrection life on planet Earth right here, right now. This isn't just about the ticket to heaven, folks. If that's all you're living for, you've missed the point. He wants to use us to bring people who are spiritually dead alive. Our labour is not in vain, folks. Because do you know what? We're going to come face to face with the risen Lord Jesus Christ as he welcomes us into eternity one day. That's our perspective. And I want to encourage you that if you struggle with this topic on the resurrection, I hope you understand the importance of it. This isn't something that you can just um, you can just put to the back and go, I'll deal with that later. This is a crucial topic to deal with. And so if you're struggling in your faith to understand it, maybe you're a Christian, and yet for you this is an area that feels very vulnerable, then I want to encourage you to investigate. I've got three of these books here this morning that I'm happy to give away. If you want to just spend some time reading this book to try and understand some of those claims, some of the evidences around it. Okay? But as Christians, I want us to fix our eyes more and more on the resurrection of Christ and what that means for us. That we get to labour knowing that we're going to come face to face with our risen Lord Jesus Christ who has defeated death. He's conquered the grave.